Hello and welcome back to Popcorn. I want to say an especially warm welcome to my new listeners this week. My hosting service at Anchor uh, informs me that in addition to my Canadian listeners, about whom I already know, I have American listeners in Seattle, Washington. I'm pretty sure I know who that is already. As well as listeners in Oregon, New Jersey, and also in St. Louis, Missouri. I was amazed to see that I also have overseas listeners as well. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that I had a new listener in Ireland, but it seems as though I may also have a fan in Germany as well. Welcome to all of you. Judich. My Irish pronunciation is undoubtedly terrible because not only do I have no frame of reference for speaking Irish, but I can't find any resources online to teach me proper pronunciation either. And the only things I'm able to find in that vein are basically teaching me that Irish pronunciation rules are insane and that it's definitely not a language one undertakes lightly. Willkommen bei euch allen. I should be doing a little better in German because I do speak a tiny little bit of Dutch and those two are at least more similar than Irish and English. Also, Google Translate can tell me how to pronounce German words, but it won't do the same for Irish. As we say in English, that's a bummer. If you know of any good online resources for speaking Irish, email me. I'd be happy to learn. I note that I do not yet have uh, any listeners in French speaking uh, regions of the world, which is also a bit of a bummer, as I do speak some French. Je voudrais aussi heureux d'offrir mes salutations à mes friends francophones, uh, mais je ne pense pas en avoir. Dommage, peut-être en l'avenir. I've spent the greater part of the last couple of months talking about my favorite Stephen King book, The Stand talked about the things that I love about the book, the things that I find fascinating, the peculiarities that make the book special. I've told you of my love for the good guys and the bad guys, of things hidden and unhidden, and the deeper meaning behind some of my favorite elements of the story. But something interesting started happening to me a few weeks ago, and it all started with an article that someone wrote about all of the things that were wrong with the stand, and it got me thinking a bit more critically about the story, and then I started to realize something. I'm pretty sure I've talked at one point about this peculiarity of forming bonds and attachments to media and pop culture when we're very young. These attachments seem very strong, but they also seem to be peculiarly irrational. It's not until we're older, though, that we start to realize the truth of this irrationality if we ever realize it at all. But we should realize it. It's a sign of maturity. And it can be difficult to face and absorb. For many years now, I've been largely uncritical of King's writing. Yes, it's true that some of his writing can be difficult to swallow because of its frankly graphic nature, but the stories have all been so much fun that I was terribly reluctant to even think about giving up this attachment to them. And I guess that's why I wasn't really willing to admit a few hard truths about certain things, like some of the problems and the logical inconsistencies in the stories. And take The Stand, for example. You could view it as all kinds of things. Uh, an adventure story, a fantasy story, a thrilling piece of post-apocalyptic literature, even a romance of sorts. But what might induce us to think about it more critically? Well, basic inconsistencies in the plot would be a good place to start. The thing is, when it comes to inconsistencies in the plot of The Stand, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're glaring inconsistencies, but I would say that they're there. And once you see them, 
you can't really ignore them. Here's a few examples. The super flu is a virus. It takes a few days to a week to kill someone, during which time it makes them feel progressively worse and worse. At the end, most victims are struggling to breathe, burning up with fever, weak as kittens, struggling to get home improvement projects finished. Wait, hang on a second. Why would the victims of a disease like this leave power saws and blenders running when they died? When the folks in Boulder get the power back up and running, they have to have a delegation going from house to house, making sure appliances are all turned off, but why? Surely it would be more believable to say that people would have turned their own things off and then crawled into bed to die? I mean, who starts cutting plywood with a table saw in the middle of an acute pandemic in which it's very clear most everyone is going to die? And I'm not talking about a pandemic like COVID-19. Now, make no mistake, I've talked about all the ways this is not like the stand. And to be honest, even Stephen King has tweeted about that, trust me. Nobody's trying desperately to finish making one last protein shake before they die choking on their own mucus. And in that same vein, here's another problem. So many people in this story driving. What in God's name for? I've had the flu myself. I mean, the normal flu once or twice in my life. I don't get sick very often, but I have. And believe me, the last thing I felt like doing was getting behind the wheel of a car and going on a road trip. And I can't imagine what people who had literally the worst case of flu in the history of the world would think of an idea like that. They were all terrified and wanted to get away. Really? Before too much time had elapsed, most of these people would have been positive they themselves were going to die. King even says it more than once about different characters, especially those amongst the survivors. They kept waiting to get sick and die themselves. So the question is, where were they going? Of the characters who exhibited this behavior, only one of them made sense to me, Charles Campion, the original vector for the disease, the soldier who escaped the facility where the virus was being developed. He started running because he really didn't have much of a frame of reference for what was going on. All he knew was that something bad had happened and he had to try and get his family out of the kill zone. He even initially believed that he may have gotten out in time, more fool he, but once the disease started spreading, it would have become painfully clear very quickly that no amount of running was going to save anyone. It seems much more logical to me that people would have pretty much stayed where they were. The hunger for companionship notwithstanding. I mean, that's eventually the reason Glenn Bateman gives for giving in and going along with Stu and his group. But other than that, what were they hoping to accomplish? You could say that they had dreamed of Mother Abigail, and they're all pursuing that dream, but that doesn't really wash either. Nadine Cross claimed she never dreamed at all, something which is clearly intended to be a bald-faced lie. But even beyond that, just because people are sharing their dreams, having what Glenn calls an authentic psychic experience, doesn't necessarily mean that they're all going to unanimously and unthinkingly agree on what course of action would be the most appropriate to pursue following the dreams. In real life, it would have been just as likely that they all would have disagreed and a bunch of people would have split up and gone their separate ways. The country's emptied out and you can pretty much choose to live wherever you want. Why Colorado of all places? Why not go to Florida, where at least you won't have to deal with harsh winter conditions? Alligators, maybe, but not snow. 
Some readers will argue that Mother Abigail sending a delegation to Vegas was insanely pointless if they were just going to get there and be killed anyways. I'm, this one I'm not necessarily sure I agree with. Yes, the journey was long, arduous, painful, and seemingly purposeless. On the one hand, you could say that they got there just in time to get vaporized without actually accomplishing anything at all. On the other hand, there's some evidence to suggest that their arrival in Vegas was actually the catalyst that led to the nuclear explosion that ended everything. Still, it doesn't feel as though they accomplished much. It's a little like looking at Tom Cullen and his quote-unquote mission. Tom didn't accomplish anything either. Well, sure, he saved Stu's life on the way back, but that wasn't the reason why he went. The actual reason why he went was... Holy baloney, what was the reason why he went? The Free Zone Committee voted to send him to Vegas to do what? Spy out the land? Bring back detailed intelligence reports? Even if he could have done such a thing, what would it have accomplished? And let's not forget that Tom is developmentally disabled, an adult with the mind of a child. He has to use a mnemonic device just to remember Stu's name when they first decided to send him. Of what value would any of the information he could glean in Vegas be to them? You could assign sense to the whole business after the fact if you tried hard enough, but what was the reasoning before the fact? I, I do think that there's something to be said for finding joy or value, if you will, in the journey. They went for the going. It's not unlikely that they all learned something about themselves on the way, and they do all notice and discuss the sort of emotional hollowing out that's happening to them as they travel. They're likely losing physical pounds as they walk, but it seems as though they're doing a certain kind of spiritual shedding as well. Something that doesn't go unremarked by Glenn Bateman, obviously, since he's the sociologist of the group and the most primed to notice such things. And I think that once we start to think about it in those terms, it makes much more sense. So much so, in fact, that I started to think that it was inevitable that they should go on this journey. Glenn says, the casting away of things is symbolic, you know, talismanic. When you cast away things, you're also casting away the self-related others that are symbolically related to those things. You start a uh, a cleaning out process. You begin to empty the vessel. That's very zen. Thank you, Glenn. The business of the destruction of Flag reminds me a little bit of something that the character of Amy once said in The Big Bang Theory. You, now, you don't need to be a fan of the show to understand the relevance of her point. What, what, she, what she said was this. She had just finished watching Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time. And she has some issues with the fact that the main character, as she puts it, plays no role in the outcome of the story. Now, I don't want to ruin the plot of that movie for those of you who have never seen it, but she's right. Everything that eventually comes about in that movie is absolutely unaffected by the actions of the main character. It would all have come about the way it did, whether he had been there or not. And the same thing feels true about the end of the stand. Flag was dispersed. And all his henchmen were essentially vaporized by a rogue nuclear weapon that was brought to them by who? One of the members of the Boulder delegation? Nope. By the trash can man, one of Flagg's own henchmen. And someone who had never even met Glenn, Larry, or Ralph before and wouldn't have known or cared who they were. So Glenn and company served absolutely no purpose other than providing the reader with a nickel's worth of free philosophical exposition on their journey through the desert. 
King is good at characterization. It may be his strongest asset as a storyteller, but some of his plot points are pretty darn weak. I love that group of guys. Maybe that's the reason why I was so irritated when they all got blown to smithereens. It was all so pointless and avoidable. Here's another thing. Flag is ridiculously inconsistent. He's been pursuing Nadine for decades. He goes to an incredible amount of trouble to get his bride and to get her pregnant so that he can have his baby Antichrist. And then after only a few minutes of taunting, he gets so angry, he kills her and the baby. It just seems too convenient. There are counter arguments to some of these things, of course, and it's pretty easy to say that a lot of the stuff happened because the story needed it to happen rather than the characters. The Boulder delegation uh, went to Vegas because Mother Abigail told them to. She had clearly demonstrated herself to be a prophet of some kind, and even those who weren't really religious understood that she wielded a certain amount of otherworldly power. But, like I said, as a plot device, it's a little weak. You have to have a better reason for characters to do things than just because the plot demands it. I guess I'm going to have to go on enjoying the story because of the characters, because goodness knows it ain't going to be because of the plot anymore. Here's something I touched on a little bit in episode 4. When I was talking about Flag and his first appearance in the book, I think it, it came off a little bit confusing. Was he always around? Was he not? Was he an ordinary revolutionary, or was he always a demon? Did the superflu create him, or did he just happen to come about because the time was right for him? Maybe the superflu came about because of him. That doesn't really feel right, because in the story, he's not around for Project Blue at all. But who knows? Bad stuff follows wherever the walking dude goes, so it's not inconceivable to think that at the very least, he would have approved of the idea of the superflu. Now, there's a theory called the Great Man Theory of History. It's basically a 19th century idea, according to which history can be largely explained by the impact of great men or heroes, highly influential and unique individuals who, due to their natural attributes, such as superior intellect, heroic courage, or divine inspiration, have a decisive historical effect. For me, the net takeaway from this theory has always been that history seems to revolve around such people. Perhaps history is even created by them. I think maybe Flag is one of these people. He's not quote-unquote great in the sense that he does good things for people. He's clearly not a good person in a moral sense. But if you use the term great in a different way, it's easier to see him as a great man, i.e. as a significant man in the context of the story. In fact, when it comes right down to it, there's actually no other way to think of Flag. It's pretty clear that that's what he is. He's the linchpin of the story, the catalyst without whom the denouement and climax of the story would not come about, or if they did, they would look very different from what they actually do. Okay. Uh, unless anyone else has anything else to add, I'm done talking about this book. I think I've beat it to death. Of course, I do welcome discussion, so if you're still interested, shoot me a line at estrost01 at gmail.com. Until then, I'll be moving on to other things, such as religious symbolism in Blade Runner. Sure, there are some obvious ones, like when Roy gets a nail driven through his hand, but they aren't all that blunt, 
and some of them are pretty subtle. Until then, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter under the username at CyberneticTiger. On Instagram, probably. And actually, if you just Google my name, you'll probably find me going all the way back to the early 90s when I first started getting into public BBS systems and the late 90s when I was all over Usenet like a rash. These days, people don't use Usenet much anymore, I don't think. It's become kind of a wasteland for test posts and random advertisements for porn and treatments for erectile dysfunction. But for a while, I was pretty active on some forums there discussing things like Blade Runner and Stephen King and a bunch of other things as well. If you do find some of my old posts there, please go easy on me. I was young and stupid and probably didn't think that carefully about the things I was posting. I know there's a trend in culture right now of calling people out for stupid things they've done in the past, especially if those things were racist or sexist or in any other way prejudicial. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't be accountable for bad behavior. But I am saying that people do stupid things when they're young. And while they should be held accountable for those things, they shouldn't have their lives ruined over them. Particularly if it's clear that people are genuinely remorseful over the mistakes they've made in the past. I'm also not saying that I ever espoused racist attitudes or philosophies. I'm quite certain I've never done that. But I was pretty brash and outspoken when I was younger, and I was sometimes prone to kind of throwing my opinion in people's faces, which is really not a very polite thing to do. But it's one of those things that you don't realize is impolite until you become an adult and start to become acutely aware of and embarrassed by the sins of your youth. You can also find me these days quite often posting articles on Quora.com, as I've mentioned before. And if you do find me there, don't be too surprised if some of that material is vaguely familiar. I sometimes use some of it as material for this podcast. Until then, au revoir. Auf Wiedersehen, Slan, and Totsins. See you next time.